Good morning, church. I'm Jim West, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. Uh, wherever you are, you're most welcome. And I just want to uh, say go Chiefs. Let's just get it out of the way. We're just going to say that right now. Go Chiefs. We're so excited for the playoffs today. Uh, if you're not a Chiefs fan, I'll pray for you. Just kidding. All right. So where we are as a church, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. We're in the 18th chapter. And really, we're walking with Jesus through the darkest day in human history. Uh, if you recall, Jesus was arrested sometime around midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've already seen him at the, uh, the, the house of the high priest where Annas did a kind of an informal interrogation. Remember, Peter has just denied Jesus three times. That's where we are. So we're going to pick up the story and John 18, 28 through 36, and Sandra Revel is going to lead us in the reading of Scripture. Good morning. I'm Sandra Revel. I joined Colonial in November of last year, and it was a big surprise to me, but also it was an answer to prayer. I moved to Kansas City from Texas and had every intention of joining the church that my family has been a part of for many years. The only problem was, as I prayed about it, I didn't get a green light from the Lord. This puzzled me. In September, I went to a coffee shop as I waited for my car to be repaired. I had every intention of spending the time to myself. Later, a woman came in and sat next to me at the counter. We acknowledged each other, but thankfully didn't get into a conversation. So after more than an hour passed by, we, we started to talk and I discovered that we had a lot in common and that she was a believer. Her name was Cheryl Ewert, and she's on the prayer team. She invited me to come to Colonial, and to be honest, I said to myself, there's no way I'm going to a Presbyterian church. I had many preconceived ideas. Well, Cheryl then gave me a paper about women in the Bible and prayer, and as I looked it over, it was so good, my interest was piqued. I visited the church soon after and experienced a real peace like this was home. I spent, I went a couple of more Sundays after that, participated in the women's retreat and even the new members class. I found the people welcoming and the teaching sound. The Bible studies were engaging and thought provoking. So I joined. I love being here. I look forward to learning and growing and finding my fit for ministry. The scripture I'm going to be reading is from John 18, 28 through 36. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of a death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, 
do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Thank you, Sandra. What a great testimony and reading of scripture. We're so grateful that Sandra is part of our church family. Okay, so my message this morning is entitled Jesus the King. And I've organized my thoughts around three subheadings. Number one, some important context. Number two, Pilate and the Sanhedrin. And then number three, Pilate and Jesus. All right, so first, some important context. If we're going to grasp the significance and the meaning of the events taking place, we need some biblical, geographical, and historical context. So bear with me. This is really important. Uh, There's details and information that just makes this story come alive in a way that I think will help you to to believe it historically, to understand it theologically, and then to apply it personally. So let's begin with some biblical context. So if you remember in verse 24, after Jesus was interviewed by Annas, remember Annas was the former high priest, very powerful man. We then read, John says, Annas then sent Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. But then, if you notice, John gives us absolutely no information about what happened in the trial before Caiaphas, which would have been the trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. In fact, following the denial story that we looked at last week, John just skips over in verse 20. He says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And that's where all the action is going to happen in our text. But we're left with the question, well, what happened in the trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And we just have to remember, John is assuming that you you have access to and have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account because John wrote his later on. So he's not going to repeat what you can already read in the other gospel accounts. But what happened there before Caiaphas and the Jewish council is very important. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles, to flip back over to Matthew 26, verses 59 through 66, and we'll just read what happened with Caiaphas and the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, because it it speaks into what's going to happen next in uh, the interview with, with Pilate. So beginning with verse 59, here's what we read. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. (laughs) It's very dramatic. I try to be dramatic when I read it because it's dramatic. Very dramatic scene. I hope you can imagine this. It's... 
pretty rough. So the council has found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And their judgment is that Jesus deserves death. According to Leviticus 24, 16, the blasphemous ones be put to death, right? So now, keep in mind that according to all four Gospels, this Jewish council has been plotting to kill Jesus for some time due to his popularity and the rumor amongst the people that Jesus was the Messiah of God. These high-powered leaders are worried that Jesus will incite a rebellion or a riot, leading the Roman occupiers to burn down the city and take away their privileged positions of power and influence. In fact, Caiaphas, the acting high priest, even said back in John 11, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That's been their mindset for quite some time. All that is to say, we should not think that the council is comprised of well-intentioned, yet sadly, uninformed leaders who misunderstood Jesus. <laughs> Most of these men are players. They are powerful, wealthy, and privileged. Their commitment to kill Jesus has far more to do with protecting their status quo than anything Jesus said in that bogus trial. So keep that clear. Okay, so following the trial at the house of Caiaphas, John reports in John 18, 28, the beginning of our text today, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, it was early morning. Okay, so we'll pull up the map here and we'll show you uh, where we are in relationship to Jerusalem there. We kind of zoom in. You see the, the bottom circle there is the house of the high priest, Caiaphas' house. That's where Jesus has been, where Peter denied Jesus there in the courtyard. And now they're moving uh, just north. It would be a short walk to Herod's palace. You can see that there, the second circle. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is a Roman governor living in Herod, the, the king of the Jews, a Jewish king, if you will, why is Pilate living in Herod's palace? Really glad you asked that question. A little history. <laughs> okay. In 4 BC, right, shortly after the birth of Christ, Herod the Great died. Now, Herod was a horrible and ruthless man, but... He was historically a competent ruler. He accomplished quite a bit during his time as the king of Israel. But I say king with quotation marks because the only reason Herod was a king is because Caesar appointed him to be in that role. Uh, Herod was only partly Jewish, and uh, he, was, he was more of a politician than a king. Any, at any rate, when Herod the Great died, well, shortly before he died, he arranged that Israel would be governed by his three sons, okay? So son number one, Antipas, was given the region of Galilee to the north and the surrounding areas. His second son, Philip, was given the wild, unpopulated regions uh, to the northeast. And then his young son, Archelaus, uh, who was only 18 years old, was granted reign over Judea, Idumea, and Samaria, including the city of Jerusalem. All right? Now, you need to know that all of these three sons would have been just referred to as Herod. <laughs> so it makes it confusing when we hear about different Herods in the New Testament. So Herod Antipas and Herod Philip were decent rulers over their districts. But according to New Testament scholar William Barclay, 
Archelaus, Herod, governed the 18-year-old, governed with such extortion and tyranny that the Jews themselves requested the Romans to remove him and replace him with a Roman governor. It's a very interesting history. So Rome responded by appointing a governor, or what they called a procurator, to rule over Israel beginning in AD 6. Okay, so the procurator was in full control of the military and the judicial administration of the province. He was expected to visit every district within the province at least once a year, and there he would hear cases and complaints upon his visit. Uh, the governor's main office and headquarters was in Caesarea. We'll show you a map. It's way up there to the north, and you can see where Jerusalem is. That's where he spent most of his time, but he would come to Jerusalem on a regular basis, and especially every year during the Passover, when hundreds of thousands of Jews made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, it was a politically tense time, and so he would regularly be there during this time of the Passover. Now, when the governor came to Jerusalem, he would stay in Herod's palace because there was no Herod anymore governing um, Jerusalem and Judea, this Samaria. That's why, that's why he's there in answer to your question. Okay, just a little bit, of, uh, little bit more history. I'm going to talk more about Pontius Pilate later on and, and even next week. But Pontius Pilate came to be the governor of Palestine here in AD 26, and he remained in power till a few years after the death of Christ in AD 35. More on that later. Okay, one more bit of context, and we'll get to the dialogue between Pilate and the Sanhedrin. Note that John records it was early in the morning. Little details like this matter, and I just want to explain to you two reasons why it matters. Uh, first of all, according to ancient history, Pilate's office was only open during the first few hours of the day. He didn't work all day. He worked just a few hours in the morning. So it would have been normal for Pilate to, to wake up to people waiting at his door. He would come sit out on his judgment seat and hear people's cases and render judgments. But he only did it in the morning. Uh, second, we must remember uh, that, that this day is a very important day in Jerusalem. It is the 14th day of Nisan. It is the Passover. Remember, we've talked about this. It's a super important day, one of the hugest days in, in all of the year for the city of Jerusalem, for the Jewish people. Now, what you have to remember is that in about 12 hours or so, when that sun sets, every Jewish family is going to be sitting down to enjoy the Passover meal. They're celebrating, looking back to the, you know, when the Hebrew slaves were liberated from Egypt and the angel of death passed over and the, the Hebrew people were spared because of the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Remember all of this? And so they would eat that lamb that had been sacrificed at the ninth hour. They would cook it. They would eat it. And every family, it was a huge deal. All over, hundreds of thousands of people enjoying a Passover meal. And so this all needs to get done before sunset, before that meal. And secondly, at sunset on this day, it'll initiate the beginning of a high and holy Sabbath. So from that point forward, no uh, faithful Jew will be able to engage in earnest work. So the council has a big job. They need to get Jesus, they need to get him, they need to get him tried, found guilty, sentenced to death, crucified and off the cross before the sun sets. There's a sense of urgency here. 
So that explains why it's early in the morning. They're going to be the first people waiting at Pilate's door to get this thing going. All right, so one last thing. With the Passover in mind, listen to what John says next in verse 28. He says, they, the council members, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. <laughs> this, is, this is ironic and it's important. Uh, there's two reasons why entering into the governor's headquarters would make them defiled. Number one, it was just part of the Jewish code of conduct and understanding that if you entered into the house of a Gentile, you were made unclean. And Pilate's a Gentile, right? He's not a Jew. But there's more. Uh, so at the Passover meal, and then for the next week, all Jews would eat only unleavened bread. That goes all the way back to the Exodus story when, when Moses told them, prepare your bread for this journey out of Egypt. It needs to be unleavened bread because there's no time for that leaven to work for the dough to rise kind of deal because we don't, we're going to be getting out of here in a hurry. And that story continued on and served as a reminder of God's deliverance. And so God had ordered, when people remember the Passover, they, would, they were to eat unleavened bread for a week. And that was, then became called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, leading up to the Passover and this week of unleavened bread, every Jewish household would go out of their way to, to sweep the house and clean furiously to make sure there was not one bit of leaven anywhere in the house. Because it was believed that a little bit of leaven, any bit of leaven would defile you and you would be disqualified from participating in the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, that, so here, the Jewish council doesn't want to go into Pilate's headquarters because they might come into contact with leaven. That's why they don't, they don't want to go in there. They would be defiled by the leaven. They wouldn't be able to participate in the Passover meal. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope you can feel the irony of this moment. Here we have a group of religious leaders who are hyper-concerned about coming into contact with leaven though they apparently have no concern about having an innocent man crucified. You feel that? I mean, it's everything we hate about religious hypocrisy. And, and Jesus nailed this group of people early on in Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24, really the whole 23rd chapter of Matthew. He called them out on this. Earlier, he had said to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And Jesus had a way with words. And he was spot on. The, the, I mean, the hypocrisy is just so thick you can cut it with a knife. I mean, if there was ever a perfect example of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's right here in John 18, 28, where we find religious people obsessing about leaven while plotting an assassination. Lord have mercy. Now, in case, in case you think that you are somehow immune to this hypocritical disorder... <laughs> I encourage you to take careful note of your own thoughts and behavior over the next 24 hours. 
I mean, like, take note of how much money you invest in keeping your house clean as compared to what you invest in those who have nothing. Take note of how offended you get at the trivial sins of others while you conveniently overlooked your own egregious sins that you commit in secret. I thank God that he died for sinful, hypocritical people like those religious leaders and for people like you and people like me. Amen? Thanks be to God. Okay, let's move on. We're going to consider now the exchange between Pilate and the Sanhedrin. So, returning to our text, verses 29 and 30, we read, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. (laughs) All right, just historically, you need to know that the Roman justice system had four required steps. Indictment, examination, defense, and verdict. And really, as we read this story, and particularly in all four gospel accounts, We'll see that Pilate was fair to that process. And so Pilate gets things started. He wants to know what is the indictment? What has Jesus been accused of? But notice that the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, they don't answer the question. They dare not say he's guilty of blasphemy because they know the Roman governor would just laugh him out of the building. He'd be like, you all just deal with that yourself. There's no Roman law about blasphemy. Right? So the council does what people do in this situation. They feign indignation. How dare you ask us this question? You know, what are we, idiots? We wouldn't have brought him to you if he hadn't done something evil. He's guilty. You just need to trust us. Now, by the way, this is always the way that falsehood operates. Falsehood thrives on generalizations and assumptions. Falsehood thrives on groupthink. Falsehood says, trust us. Trust us, we're the experts. You don't need to understand the specifics. You don't need to explore the facts yourself. Everybody who is anybody agrees with us. Shame on you if you disagree with us. How dare you, right? But I hope you know that Christianity, true Christianity, never, ever participates in shallow generalizations, assumptions, and careless groupthink. Why? Because Christianity is making a claim of truth, eternal, unadulterated truth. And anytime anybody's going to make a claim of truth, it is open to critique, it is open to examination, it's all out there in the light, take your best shot, let's go, let's go find out. Right? So, I don't know that we could say the same, quite frankly, for our modern politics, education, and popular philosophies. We get an awful lot of, trust me, how dare you ask any questions? You should just believe us because we're, you know, we're us. We're experts. We're smart. You should just trust us. Listen, uh, do not allow people in power to persuade you with a wink and a nod. Mm -mm. do your own inquiry truth matters it's worth the effort to go and find out what is true amen and that's particularly the case when it comes to Christianity I would never ask you to believe me just because I'm a professional pastor go read the Bible go do the research that's why I'm giving you all the history it's there for us to learn Christianity is true 
but falsehood thrives on these kind of methods of generalization, assumptions, groupthink. Okay. Now, Pilate is a politician, but he's also in charge. He's got a big job. He takes it very seriously. So, I mean, I can really... Can you imagine Pilate just rolling his eyes at these pompous men? They're clearly up to something. He certainly does not at all trust them. He wants nothing of this facade. So he responds in verse 31, Well, take them yourselves and judge them by your own law. At this point, I'm thinking Pilate's already generally irritated. I mean, if the Sanhedrin had tried a person in their court and found him guilty, they were essentially wasting the governor's time by bringing him to the Roman court. There's only one reason why the Jewish council would bring a man they had already judged to Pilate. And that is if they wanted that man executed. Again, a little bit of history. When the first Roman governor named Copinius was uh, appointed in AD 6, the Jewish judicial system was generally left to run as it had for hundreds of years. And that means that the Jewish council had the authority to exercise capital punishment. They rarely did. And the Jewish law was, was a very merciful and thoughtful and profound legal system. Uh, but they had the authority to do that. But not long after Pontius Pilate became the governor in 26 AD, the Roman government made it illegal for the Jews to practice capital punishment or what they called uh, ius gladi, the right of the sword. Now, why did they do that? I don't know. I suspect the change came as a result of the ongoing feuds between the Jews and the Samaritans. But there was one notable exception. The, the Romans banned the Jewish people, the council from exercising capital, except for one thing, if someone desecrated their temple. That's an interesting little note, because if you remember, the only traction that they found in the trial before Caiaphas was two witnesses who tried to make a case that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple. If that charge is stuck, they might have been able to reason that they could have Jesus executed uh, by that one caveat of, of defiling the temple. But the, the charge didn't stick. And so the Jewish council is now in a tough place. They feel that, that they have convinced themselves that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, that Jewish law would have him be stoned to death. They can't stone a man to death, and they don't want to get into a fight with Pilate. So they're trying to get Pilate to do the capital punishment on their behalf. This is why the council responds to Pilate in verse 31 saying, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, church, you have to imagine how hard it was for these proud Jewish leaders to speak those words to a Gentile governor. The Jews hated Rome. They were a proud people with a God-ordained judicial system, and nothing made them chafe more than being micromanaged by the Roman occupiers. But on this occasion, it's convenient for them. Uh, They have a very evil agenda, and now, for that reason, they are quite willing to bow to Rome, if Rome will execute Jesus on their behalf. It's just pathetic. Alexander McLaren writes, Malicious hatred will eat any amount of dirt and humiliation to gain its end, especially if it calls itself religious zeal. I think that fairly captures this exchange between the Sanhedrin and Pilate. 
these evil men are willing to do and say whatever it takes to get Jesus killed. And truth be told, they would prefer that Jesus be killed on a Roman cross as opposed to the Jewish style of execution of stoning. Why? Well, if you remember Deuteronomy 21-23, it reads, A hanged man is cursed by God. So the council wanted Jesus to die a very public death, a humiliating death, a death where he would be hanged on a tree because it would send a very clear message to all of the people in Jerusalem, all of the Jewish people who are here for the Passover, this man Jesus is cursed by God. So moving on, John comments on the Sanhedrin's appeal to Rome in John 18.32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Notice, as corrupt and evil as the council may have been, Jesus knew he was going to die on a cross. The Holy Spirit had revealed this to him, and he knew that death on that cross would ultimately save the world. This is what he said. John 12, 31, 32, remember this? He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was talking about his crucifixion. The Father had already shown him, this is required, death on a tree. What the whole world will think is a curse by God is actually going to save the world from the curse of sin. Thanks be to God. You know, I guarantee you that the Jewish Sanhedrin would have never guessed that 2,000 years after they were pushing up daisies, that billions of people would see that cross and think about God's love for sinful people and Jesus Christ of Nazareth as our Savior. They never saw that coming. But our Father in Heaven did. Thanks be to God. All right, before we move on, I want to point something out to you. You know, we faced some difficult trials in the past few years. Not just colonial, not just America, but everybody, everywhere. It's been a very hard, unprecedented season for all of us who are alive. It's been a very, very difficult time. I will admit that that it appears to me that Satan has leveraged covid politics, critical race theory, masks, vaccines, and all many, many things to divide us, to divide our church, to divide our families, to create a huge amount of stress and consternation upon our souls. And I know so many of you, you're feeling that. You know, I talked to a lady this week and she just broke down crying. She says, I'm just sad. And a lot of us are feeling that. But I want you to notice how God works. God takes the most horrible, evil intentions of man and he works them together for our ultimate good. He is a God of grace and he is a good and faithful God. Amen? So don't be surprised. A few hundred years from now, when we look down on planet Earth and people are saying something like, you know, that whole time of COVID turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to our Lord's church. Listen, if he can redeem a Roman cross, he can redeem all the hardships that we're facing today. Amen? And he'll do it through his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how God works. Okay, let's conclude now with 
the exchange between Jesus and Pilate. And I'm going to call this part one because we're going to deal with part two. It's going to continue on next week. We don't have time to get into all of it today. So we're going to look at part one of this exchange between Pilate and Jesus. So John continues in our text, the narrative beginning here in verse 33. He says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Okay. Coming back to Pilate, uh, you know, Pilate is not about to have a man killed simply because the Jewish council asked nicely. We've got to give him that. He's trying to do his own investigation now. I mean, you can almost see the governor shaking his head in disbelief, muttering something unflattering about these stubborn Jewish people. As he walks back into his chambers, he has one of his attendants bring Jesus inside so they can speak privately. And he begins by asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It's kind of hard to imagine his tone because here's Jesus, a very, very modest man. There's nothing regal about his appearance, his clothes. But he's, you know, he's asking the question, are you the king of the Jews? Now, th- this is an interesting question because looking back on John's account, you know, th- there was no mention of Jesus claiming to be the king of the Jews. Uh, the council then accused him of making that claim in, in John's gospel. But again, you know, John is assuming that we've read Luke's gospel, chapter 23, 1 and 2. So let's just go back and read that. This, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. John assumes that we know that part. That's why he didn't repeat it. But that's why Pilate's asking the question, so are you the king of the Jews? By the way, I mean, everything that we just read there in Luke 23 is a lie. Jesus did not tell anybody to not pay tribute to Caesar. Remember that? And uh, he never claim that he was, you know, going to be like the king, follow me, I'm going to lead an insurrection. Nothing like that. So they lied. But Pilate asked the question now, are you the king of the Jews? Now in Luke's account, if we go back and read this as it continues on, Jesus responds, you have said so. Which is really an enigmatic answer. Right? Jesus neither confirms or denies that he's a king. He simply puts the ball back in Pilate's court. But in John's account, we get a much more detailed account of the exchange between Jesus and Pilate, which leads us to think either John was there or he was in relationship with somebody who was there because we get a, a deeper conversation. So according to John's account, Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus answers with his own question, which is what Jesus always does, right? So he answers with a question. He says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say to you about me? Now, note how Jesus just takes control of the interrogation. 
uh, when Pilate thinks that he is the judge, but he's quickly learning that when you stand in the presence of Jesus, you're the one being judged, right? I think the authority and the powerful presence of Jesus, just his eyes, just his countenance, has rattled Pilate already. And really, you know, had Pilate paused just for a moment here to consider what Jesus just asked, he might have come to see who he was actually talking to. Consider what Jesus just asked Pilate. He said, Do you say that I'm a king of your own accord? Now, that is actually a question that should be asked universally. It should be asked of you, of every member of our church, every member of every church, everywhere in the world. Do you say that I am a king of your own accord? Jesus basically asking the same question he asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the question he's asking Pilate. You see, Jesus isn't all that concerned what you think of other people's statements about him. He's most interested to hear what you say about him. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a king? Is he the king above all kings? Is Jesus the son of God? Is Jesus the savior of the world? Are your thoughts about Jesus what you have come to of your own accord? Or are you still quoting what other people have said about Jesus? That's exactly the conversation that Jesus is now having with Pilate. Who do you say that I am? Do you say that on your own accord? Or are you just quoting other people? Pilate's shaken by Jesus at this moment. I have no doubt. He... he he was not prepared for this. He doesn't even know what to say. So, I mean, he, he does what we all do when we get uncomfortable. We kind of jump into sarcasm, right? And he says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now, I just want to point out that Pilate does what we all do. Pilate just jumps in to give a religious answer. You notice that? Not unlike the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, Pilate uses religion to avoid dealing with Jesus and what he just said. And that's just what we do, right? Uh, I'm going to give you a challenge. Here's an experiment. I want you to try this. Just try once. Try it a couple times maybe because it happens every time. Talk to somebody and ask them, what do you think about Jesus? Just ask this question. What do you think about Jesus? And here's what's going to happen. They're going to talk about religion. They immediately will jump into something like, well, I was raised Catholic. Or, you know, I grew up going to a Baptist church. Or, I've never really been much for the whole church thing. But that's not even the question that you asked. He said, tell me what you think about Jesus. You see, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's, he's putting Pilate on the spot. He's saying, who do you say that I am? And Pilate just gets religious. I'm not a Jew. That's a religious question. I, I mean, I'm not going to get into religious stuff. Mm, it's just what we do. So Pilate then, quite unknowingly, asked the perfect question of Jesus. Watch what he says. He says, what have you done? That's a great question. Now, Pilate's asking the question because he's looking to see if Jesus will admit breaking a law or, you know, why, why have you torqued everybody off? Why are they so mad at you? Why do they want you dead? But if he had the ears to hear, 
the answer to that question, what have you done? Jesus may well have said to him, well, I'll tell you what I've done. I've left my glory in heaven. I've taken on flesh, denied my own privilege, and come to you as a sacrificial lamb to rescue your soul and the souls of all sinful men from the fires of hell. If only you will repent and believe. That's what I've done. I'd like to add to that that I have healed the sick, made the lame to leap, the blind to see. I've cast out the hordes of hell, calmed the tempest, and raised the dead. I've been busy. That's what I've done. (laughs) There's a lot of ways Jesus could have answered that question, but here's what he actually says to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Now, notice, Jesus does not deny that he is a king, but he qualifies it. He qualifies his kingship in a way that removes any kind of threat towards Rome. First, Jesus states, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus will also say that his kingdom is not from this world in a moment. But let's deal with the first thing first. What does Jesus mean when he says that my kingdom is not of this world? Probably means a great many things. We don't have time to unpack it all. But at least it clearly means that the kingdom of Jesus is qualitatively unique, set apart, and altogether different than the kingdoms of this world. Right? And Jesus gives Pilate a perfect illustration as to what he means. He states, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. You see, kingdoms of this world are marked by fighting and violence. So if the kingdom of Jesus were of this world, there would be fighting and violence by those who are of his kingdom, right? I hope you heard that, church. Fighting and violence are of this world. They are not of the kingdom of God. They're not of the kingdom of Jesus. This statement to Pilate about fighting is another strong condemnation, once again, of Peter's swordplay in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is a strong condemnation of every time the church succumbs to the tactics and practices of the world. Those who live under the kingship of Jesus are those who are to live contrary to and set apart from the ways and practices of the world. We'll unpack this further, but please take some time to meditate upon the profundity of what Jesus just said. Let us give careful attention to our king and his kingdom. And let us hold fast to this truth, that to live under the reign of King Jesus is to live as those who are not of this world. That has profound ramifications into every aspect of your life and mine, of your conflict and mine, of our challenges before us. We just don't fight, we don't engage, we don't think, we don't respond and react like people who are of the kingdoms of this world. We live under King Jesus. And we follow him and we respond as people who are subjects of King Jesus. A lot there. Okay, note the last thing Jesus says. 
he says that his kingdom is not from this world. King Jesus and his kingdom do not originate out of the stuff of this world. He did not evolve from the primordial soup. He is not the figment of some poet's imagination. Jesus and his kingdom are not some ancient social construct to develop to give hope to the poor and the uneducated. The kingdom of Jesus came from heaven. It is of heaven. And that means it belongs to God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And one day, the kingdom of Jesus will be all and in all. We will see our king and his kingdom take up residence in a new heaven and a new earth. But his kingdom is not from here. It's not of here. But it is here. Already. The kingdom of heaven is among us. And it is available for us even now through faith. We can enter into his kingdom and live as subjects under the kingship of Jesus if we will simply humble ourselves, turn from our sin, and call upon his name, Jesus. That's our induction. And it's a transformation. It's a, it's a complete wholesale change of citizenship from those who are of this world to those who are of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It takes time to learn how to live in the kingdom of Jesus because his ways are completely counterintuitive to the kingdoms of this earth. Amen? Only through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, guiding us, and empowering us can we come to live as citizens of King Jesus in his kingdom. But here's what is evident throughout history. When our Lord's kingdom comes on earth, as it is in heaven, when the church manifests the kingdom of Jesus, the king and his kingdom changes lives, families, neighborhoods, cities, and even nations. Jesus is the king. Amen? I pray those of us at Colonial will be found as those who are loyal subjects to King Jesus and his kingdom on earth. And that through his kingdom, coming here into Kansas City, into the places where his church is faithful, that we will see this transformation from being of this world to being of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that is, in, that is among us wherever Christ is. Okay, we'll pick up here next week. But for now, let me just leave you with this question. It's always the most penetrating question. Who do you say Jesus is? I'm not asking you to tell me what your pastor said or some, you know, skeptic or some, you know, blog site. Like, who do you say Jesus is? Do you know Jesus as your king? Have you experienced the joy and challenges of living in his kingdom? I mean, I just want you to take some time this week. Here's your assignment. Take some time this week. Get alone, get quiet for a while, and just write down who Jesus is and what you sincerely believe about his kingship and his kingdom. And if you're sitting there and you have questions, take them to Jesus in prayer study the Gospels, and ask God to make the truth clear to your heart 
and your mind. And when God makes that clear and the truth is before you, then embrace it. Yield to what is true and live according to what is true. Amen? It's not easy, but it's what he's called us to, to be his subjects in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of Jesus, under the kingship of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we close here today, we just see Jesus again. We see him and we love him. He is so patient with Pilate, with the Sanhedrin. He, he is the Lord, even in the midst of this horribly dark day, when the Lamb of God will be slain for the sins of the world. But even in this final hour of his life, he is asking this penetrating question, who do you say that I am? And it hits us right where we are today because how we think of you so much determines the way we think of everything else. How we think about COVID, how we think about the challenges in our country and in our health and our concerns about relationships and jobs and finances, it all hinges upon who we say you are. If you are the king, then you have a kingdom. And if we belong to you, then, then we are your subjects and we can trust you. We can trust you to be a good king. But if we don't actually believe in you, then we're of this world and, and all of our fears and concerns and hopes are bound up in this world. And, and that's pretty discouraging. So Lord, I pray that you'll move today, your Holy Spirit will move, that you'll bring us to faith or at least bring us to an honest place where we'll honestly articulate who we believe Jesus is. And as we wrestle with that, as we have questions, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, convict our hearts, lead us into the scriptures, lead us into great conversations with people who can walk with us in trying to discern what is true. And finally, we thank you that you endured the cross this whole day, subject to lies and accusations, subject to the the whims of men who thought they were powerful when in fact they were simply pawns. We thank you that you endured this day for us, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to the Father, that we would have hope for this life and the next. And I pray that all who are hearing today would place their faith in you, trusting what you accomplished on this day, the power of the resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, the defeat of death, that we might have hope, that we would be ambassadors of this hope, that we would be the light of Christ in this hurting culture. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all the church said, amen, amen. All right, God bless you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Obviously, go Chiefs, but whatever comes, <laughs> Jesus is on the throne. It's going to be okay. Love you, church. See you next time. Bye-bye.